Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5. And we'll be this morning in verses 15 through 21. Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's please pray together once again. Our Father, we depend on your Holy Spirit's presence to make this hour profitable and good for us. We pray that you would do that for us now as your word is open and laid before us. May the truth prevail and may you convince us and show us the truth. And may we heartily and readily accept it with willing hearts. And may you enable us, help us and teach us how to apply it to our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I heard this week, for other presentations like this, but came to me with special force this week that uh, the current generation, uh, the millennial generation, uh, is struggling in the area of attention span. That uh, our attention spans apparently with each subsequent generation get shorter and shorter and shorter. Uh, which is really bad news because uh, it seems like we've never been more inundated with things that we really must pay attention to. So if you watch the news, or if you're on social media, if you read blogs or things like that, it seems like there are so many things that demand our immediate attention. So many things we need to keep track of and we need to be thinking about on a day-to-day basis. And I imagine many of you, uh, from your week-to-week, day-to-day lives, are just consumed with uh, the next task and the next thing I have to give myself to, my attention to. It could really be exhausting. Uh, if, if you're a homeowner, uh, all sorts of things maybe around the house that have to get done. And, uh, you know, maybe you're thinking, you know, there's that, that smell in the basement. I don't know what that is. We're going to have to give attention to that at some point. If, uh, if you're a homemaker, if you're a mom who's putting dinner on the table, you know, you might be thinking, you know, so, you know, husband is struggling with high cholesterol and this one has a food allergy and I have to provide some sort of meal that provides nutrients for everybody and got to give attention to the diet of everyone and, Uh, So many people nowadays have various allergies, and so finding the right products at the store that could accommodate this one and that one, you've got to give a lot of attention. Maybe if you're trying to lose weight, you're counting carbs, and you're doing the math, and got to give attention to these different details. If you're thinking about retirement, pay attention to the markets. What's the stock market doing? Is my portfolio diversified? Do I have enough money for uh, my family and for my kids after me? Is that all in order? And it could just be totally overwhelming. By the way, don't forget about North Korea. 
Uh, don't forget about conspiracies in Russia and uh, different things that we really just feel like we have to give our attention to. Well, I find it reorienting, good for my heart, to sit before the Apostle Paul. And I'll remind you, we don't always think of this. But a man who had seen the risen Christ and who had seen churches planted and who had been used mightily in the power of the Holy Spirit to impact the nations for the sake of the gospel. When he says to us, he says in verse 15, look carefully. We need to pay attention. A lot of things demanding our attention. A lot of things we need to be giving attention to. But when the Apostle Paul, inspired by his spirit, says to us, look carefully, we need to lean into that. If you're going to give attention to something, he's telling us, pay attention to this. And so this text opens before us with verses 15 through 17. Really just going to briefly scan those verses as that's not the, the main burden of the message this morning. But in essence, Paul is wrapping up a section we've been seeing for several weeks now about how God's people are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. How we're to live as God's people, how we're to conduct ourselves from day to day and week to week. And so the first thing he says is, give attention to how you walk. Look carefully at how you walk. I just encourage you, brothers and sisters, of all the things that demand your attention, how you live in this world circumspectly as a child of God and a disciple of Jesus Christ demands your attention. Look carefully how you walk. Pay attention to how you live. There, there are some in Christendom, uh, in, in evangelicalism, who uh, might make you feel as though paying really close attention to how you live is some form of legalism. Well, not according to Paul. Caring about, taking care, to see that we're walking in holiness and righteousness and conduct that's well-pleasing to God and consistent with a gospel testimony is something we ought to give ourselves to. And so he tells us, look carefully then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And then second thing we're told is in verse 16 that we need to understand the time. We need to make the best use of the time. I think what Paul is simply getting at here is that, first of all, we're to understand our own lives in perspective. We're to understand the brevity of life. Look, each one of us, whether we like to admit it or not, is heading toward death. We are all possessed with a particular cancer. It's called being born and living in this world. We're all heading to our death. And we need to have an awareness of the brevity of life. Other places in the scriptures, the Bible says life is like a breath. It's like, and it's gone. Just like a vapor. It just disappears. Uh, we, we grow like, like grass and then we die. We're like flowers that fade. Uh, life is short and the Christian person who's looking carefully at how they walk, paying attention to how we walk in this world, is aware of this. Life is short. Life is brief. How am I using my time? Paul's exhortation is in light of the truths that we've seen in the first five chapters of Ephesians. We need to make good use of the time. We don't have time to waste. But not only that, we have an awareness of our own perspective on time, but we also know that Christ is coming again. We know the times in terms of the direction the universe is taking, and that uh, Christ is coming, and that Judgment is coming and that heaven is coming. Being aware of that causes us to have perspective on how we live our lives. That we live for the kingdom that is to come. It gives us perspective on how we live our lives today. And then the third thing he says is found in verse 17. We're not to be foolish. But we need to understand what the will of the Lord is. Now I recognize there's 
uh, a way in which we talk about God's will uh, that is in some ways unknown to us. You know, what, what is the Lord's will for my life? If you're a college student, what, what am I supposed to major in? What does God want me to do? Or I'm going to choose this career or that career or, or, or what have you. We, we talk about God's will in that way. That's not what Paul means here. Paul's talking about the will of God expressly revealed in the scriptures. I just want to encourage you Christians, we don't have to live like we're clueless as to God's will. He makes his will known to us. The word is like a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Again, to use that imagery of walking. The Bible gives us these answers, tells us how God wants us to live in this world. So I encourage you, my brother, my sister, don't act like you're clueless. Go to the scriptures and learn there how God wants us to live, how he wants us to walk. And Paul's saying, don't be foolish, don't be ignorant. I've just spent these five chapters telling you what the will of God is, and I will continue to do so in this epistle. And so that's why we come to this passage, to know what the will of the Lord is and to live according to his will. Now we get to the main command, which is in verse 18. And this is the command we want to consider this morning. Verse 18 starts with a prohibition and then a positive command. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is... The ESV has it, debauchery. Some translations say dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine, negatively. Positively, be filled with the Spirit. Now, I believe that though Ephesians 5.18, the instructions were given thereafter, are in continuity with this concern for Paul that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In some ways, Paul is opening up a new section with verse 18. He's talking now about what it means to live in the Spirit. It's one influenced by God's Spirit, particularly in particular relationships. And so we're going to get to verses 22 through 33 in a couple weeks, which talk about uh, living in the Spirit in the context of marriage. What does a Spirit-filled marriage look like between a husband and a wife? And then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we'll talk about parents and children. What does the Spirit-filled family look like? And then in verses 5 through 9, Paul is going to talk about the relationship between servants and masters. But really, chapter 5 and verse 18 is opening up that section for us. All of what we're going to see in those relationships is connected with this idea of being filled with God's Spirit. But here in verse 18 this morning, we just have this general command, be filled with the Spirit of God. And so this morning, we want to ask two questions. First of all, what does it mean to be filled with? with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And then secondly, what are the results of being filled with the Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And then what are the results? What do Spirit-filled people do? How do they conduct themselves? So first question, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Do not get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding um, across evangelicalism today about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. If you've been in various church contexts for many years, you might know there's differing perspectives about what that means to be filled with the Spirit of God. There are some movements that believe that being filled with the Holy Spirit uh, produces sort of charismatic spontaneity uh, that, that... Uh, The service is really dynamic and and very loud, and maybe some are speaking in tongues, and this one has a word of prophecy, and that's really what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Others might argue that to be filled with the Spirit is to enter into some sort of higher life, some sort of 
ethereal, ecstatic, spiritual experience where maybe we see visions and we dream dreams and have this sort of, sort of ecstatic experience of the Lord's presence. However, none of these things really has anything to do with being filled with the Spirit biblically. Uh, not according to the Bible. But sadly, in some Christian circles, uh, reacting against maybe an overly charismatic view of the Spirit, a chaotic view of the Holy Spirit's influence, have overreacted uh, into a place of uh, simply ignoring the Holy Spirit, not really knowing what to do with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, you talk to some conservative Christians, it's almost like they're a little bit freaked out when you start talking about the Spirit's influence and what the Spirit's doing, because we might associate that with chaos and, and, and charismatic sort of, sort of influences. But we shouldn't overreact. shouldn't be clueless. We are people who know what the will of God is, and it is revealed to us in his word. We don't have to ignore the Holy Spirit or to be unaware about his ministry. The Bible gives us clear teaching on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, to that end, I just want to recommend, by the way, uh, a book to you if you're interested in, in just getting a solid biblical look at the Holy Spirit and His ministry. I'd recommend you Keeping in Step with the Spirit by J.I. Packer. Excellent, highly readable, maybe 200 pages on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Packer argues in that book, I think it's an eminently biblical thesis, that the Spirit's primary ministry is to mediate to us, His people, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the Holy Spirit want to do? He doesn't want chaos. He wants to show us Christ and to mediate to us His presence. In fact, that's what the Lord Himself said as He was preparing to leave. He said, I'm going to send the Helper. And He's going to take what was mine. He's going to give it to you. He's going to bring to us Christ's presence. Spirit's ministry is a ministry of truth. He reveals the truth of God to us. He causes us to see Christ and to know God. And that is his primary ministry. He wants to show us Christ and bring his presence to bear in our lives. It's his primary ministry. But if that is the Spirit's primary ministry, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? The idea that this can change by various degrees, to be filled with the Spirit, what is Paul talking about? Well, I think if we want to know what Paul means by being filled with the Spirit, the first question we need to ask is, why does Paul mention drunkenness here? So he's, he's wrapping up this section on how we're to live, okay? And he says that we're to look carefully how we walk, we're to know the times, making the best use of the time, we're to know the will of God. And then I don't know, maybe this is not the case for you. It just seems kind of out of nowhere, Paul says, oh, and do not get drunk with wine. Almost like he forgot to include that earlier. But be filled with the Spirit. Does that grip you as a little bit odd? I mean, I would think if Paul was going to talk about drunkenness, maybe the most logical place to address that would be in Ephesians 4, maybe for 17 and following, where Paul talks about how uh, the Gentiles used to walk and the futility of their minds and in uh, uh, perversion. If anything contributes to the, f- the futility of a person's mind, I would think drunkenness would. Maybe Paul would have mentioned it earlier in Ephesians 5 when talking about impurity and vulgarity and foolishness. That might be the place to address drunkenness. But no, he puts it here in our text this morning in his introduction to a discourse on the Holy Spirit. What's Paul doing here? How should we understand this? Here's what I believe Paul is doing. I believe the reason that Paul mentions the prohibition against drunkenness that is, the excessive consumption of alcohol that leads to mental and physical impairment is by way of an analogy. 
Paul's using an analogy, I believe. So Paul is talking about the issue of influence. What influences a person? If a person is filled with wine to the point of drunkenness, we say that he or she is under the influence, right? That's what a DUI is. If you have a certain amount of alcohol in your system, you're dr- we conclude your faculties are impaired and you're not fit to drive a vehicle. You're under the influence of wine. And wine can animate a person negatively and bring about tremendous ruin and destruction. It can uh, numb our mental faculties. It can impair even our vision and our sense of right and wrong. And even what we're saying with our mouths, we're influenced by the consumption of much wine. Paul's saying just as someone can be under the influence of wine, could be animated by alcohol, we ought to be under the influence and animated by the Holy Spirit. So don't be filled with wine. Don't let wine regulate and control and animate your behavior. Let the Holy Spirit fill you, animate you, regulate your behavior. It's not like the Holy Spirit is a chemical product that we pour into ourselves. The issue is of influence. What is influencing you? He's saying just like wine can influence a person and regulate their behavior, so the Holy Spirit ought to regulate our behavior. Now, don't take that analogy too far. Some people do. They compare the influence of the Holy Spirit with drunkenness in the sense that it's just like you kind of lose yourself when you're drunk, so you just kind of lose yourself when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. But I don't think that's Paul's point at all. Being filled with the Spirit is not to be viewed as some form of spiritual intoxication where we just lose all control in some sort of erratic, chaotic trance. It's not Paul's point. Paul's point is simply that just as being filled with wine can animate a person and dictate his or her actions, so the Spirit ought to animate us and regulate our conduct. I think John Stott is really helpful on this point in his commentary on this text. He really captures this point well. He says, quote, A person who is drunk, we say, is under the influence of alcohol. And certainly a Spirit-filled Christian is under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. But there the comparison ends... The contrast begins. It is a serious mistake to suppose that to be filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ is a kind of spiritual inebriation in which we lose control of ourselves. On the contrary, self-control is the final quality named as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. I love this. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we do not lose control. We gain it. Isn't that helpful? What is the Holy Spirit wanting to produce in the lives of all His people? The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So He's saying, just as someone is filled with wine and animating their behavior and causing them to lose control, you be filled with the Spirit, let Him regulate your behavior, and under His influence, gain control of yourself. Self-control, being under the influence of God's Spirit. So first of all, we see that to be filled with the Spirit is to come totally and completely under His influence. We're animated by the Spirit. Our lives, our thoughts, our actions are being regulated by the Spirit's influence. We're going to go on in a minute to consider what the filling of the Spirit produces in the lives of Christians. But there are a few more things I want us to see about this verb, be filled, in particular. That's the main verb of this text, be filled. The next few verses, 19, 20, 21, are all subordinate to that main verb, okay? A few things I want us to observe about this verb, be filled. 
And uh, there's things I think we can draw just by understanding the verb itself. First of all, in the original language, the verb for be filled is an imperative verb, meaning that it's a command. Like, you be filled, do this. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So just like we've been given a number of other imperatives about how we're to use our speech, how we're to control our anger, uh, how we're not to grieve the Spirit, how we're to encourage one another, just like we're to heed those commands, so we are to heed the command to be filled with God's Spirit and to bring ourselves totally under His influence. But a second thing to notice about this verb is that it's in the plural form. And we don't exactly see this in English. Uh, but, but you kids, some of you study Latin or Spanish or other languages. You know there's the singular form, there's the plural form. If, uh, if, if I said, you, Zach, can you get me a glass of water? That would be singular, the way I'm using that word, you. Singular, referring to one person. But there's a way I could use that word which would refer to a multitude of people. So I could say, would you please stand? Referring to this plural group of people here gathered in the room. That's how Paul is communicating here. You, you Ephesians... You congregation meeting in Ephesus, you be filled with the Spirit. Now, why on earth does that matter? Well, because being filled with the Spirit of God is not meant to be seen as the elitist privilege of a few. But it's something that's meant to be experienced by all of God's people. He's saying there's there's no VIPs in the church. Each one of us is to pursue this filling of the Spirit. Well, that, that kind of reorients our thinking, doesn't it? Because we, we tend to think, well, only those who minister publicly, they're, they're filled with the Spirit. Or um, there are certain ones, man, the Holy Spirit just permeates them. They're the really Spirit-filled people. I'm not really, you know, I'm not really there. But Paul's command is a plural command. It's meant to be heeded by all of God's people. We're all to pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit and the influence of God's Spirit from the youngest to the oldest, to the one who has been uh, uh, just baptized into Christ, and the one who's been walking with Christ for decades, We're to pursue corporately this filling of the Holy Spirit. But then thirdly, this verb is, we say, in the passive form. Passive form. Which means the idea is let the Spirit fill you. So we don't do the filling. The Spirit does it. We receive that filling of the Holy Spirit. It's like subject yourself to the influence of the Holy Spirit. Present yourself to Him and open yourself up to Him and let Him do the filling. Now, in my mind, this raises a really, really interesting point. Difficult point. I, I really poured over this this week in the study, trying to make sense of what Paul is getting at. We're commanded, like, we're told we have to do this, to be filled with the Spirit, and yet it's a passive command. Does that present a problem for you? How could one be actively passive? I mean, it kind of depends on the Holy Spirit, right? Whether I'm going to be filled or not. And yet I'm commanded, be filled with the Spirit. Well, I kind of need Him to do that, right? It doesn't really seem that I have a role to play in this. It's a passive command. How can one actively be passive? I hope it's not just me, but that, in my mind, presents a bit of a conundrum. Well, here's how I understand Paul. Uh, he is telling us that the ministry of the Spirit, we're passive in that. I and mean, we depend on the Holy Spirit to fill us. We can't come up with some formula by which he'll appear in our lives. But I do believe Paul is telling us that there are things we can do to create an environment in which the Spirit fills us. We can't do the filling. Only the Spirit can. But we can accommodate the filling of God's Spirit. Let me give you a few ways I think we could subject ourselves to the influence of God's Spirit and heed Paul's command to be filled with 
the Spirit. First of all, we could resist sin in our lives. Uh, Paul says this earlier in Ephesians 4, verse 30. We're not to grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. We're not to grieve Him, not to sin against Him. I'm so appreciative. Uh, a few weeks ago in a small group environment, Jerry Harp reminded us of this, that, look, I can't make the Spirit be present in my life, but am I working to be a clean vessel for His filling? Am I seeking to root out sin in my life? Such a helpful observation. And again, I think John Stott's helpful on this point. He says, There is no technique to learn and no formula to recite. But what is essential is such a penitent turning from what grieves the Holy Spirit and such a believing openness to Him that nothing hinders Him from filling us. I think Stott's getting to the point. We resist sin in our lives and seek to present ourselves as clean vessels for the divine filling of the Holy Spirit. You realize there are things we can do to hinder the Spirit's presence in our lives. We can present obstacles. We live in unrepentant sin. We're not going to experience this filling that Paul calls us to. But if we are proactive in putting to death our sin, repenting of our sin, keeping short accounts, and pursuing holiness before the Lord, I believe we'll experience the filling of the Holy Spirit. Another way we might experience this filling is by praying to the Holy Spirit. You know, you can pray to all three persons of the Godhead. We come primarily to God the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I hope that you talk to Jesus individually. I hope you talk to the Holy Spirit. Ask Him to be present in your life and to fill you. We sing certain songs that address different members of the Trinity for that reason. One of my favorite songs to sing, especially before I preach, is Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. I'm willing and I'm praying that you'd come. And so fill me with your Holy Spirit. Pray to the Holy Spirit that you would experience this filling. Read God's Word, which is where His Spirit speaks to us. Do you want to hear God talking to you? Go to the Bible. That's where He speaks to us. Commit to regularly submitting yourself to faithful Bible teaching in whatever format. I mentioned this in the equip class this morning, but I had the opportunity to be uh, at at, uh, Grace Reformed Church in Mebane, uh, which is our sending church, and got to give a report on just how things are going here in Winston. And uh, one of the questions one of the members asked me um, while I was giving that presentation is, pastorally, what encourages you most? First thing that came to my mind is that there's an evident hunger for the Bible among God's people here at Emmanuel Church. Well, may that always be so. That whenever we offer context in which the Bible is going to be discussed and taught and proclaimed, that we flock to hear God's Word, because we need it, like a starving man needs bread. We need it like we need air in our lungs. We always hunger to hear from God through His Word. The Bible is where the Holy Spirit speaks to us, and therefore if we want to know His presence in our lives, we have to come to the Scriptures. Daily, weekly, in context like this. Let me just say as an aside, uh, let me encourage you to be very careful and judicious with the phrase, God told me. Or God spoke to me, or the Holy Spirit told me to do such and such. The Holy Spirit does tell us to do certain things. We're going to consider them in His Word, where He speaks to us, in a few moments. But you, know, you hear people say this, well, God told me to start a business. And then the business fails, and you're like, was He just teasing you? Or what was that all about? I mean, very frequently, we'll say these sorts of things. We need to be careful with the way we use that term. There are people who use the, the God told me line uh, to divorce their spouses, God told me it was time to move on. Okay? Uh, God does tell us things, but he tells us through his word. He still speaks to us. 
but it's through the Bible. There the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Another way to encourage you in being filled with the Spirit, be regularly among God's people. Spirit-filled people. You've got a brother or sister, they're filled with God's Spirit. Be close to them. Breathe the air they're breathing. Talk to one another. Be among God's people as much as possible. And finally, I would say participate in worship gatherings where the Spirit of God promises to be present in a special way. If you say you want to know the filling of God's Spirit, and yet there's no eagerness to be in the context in which He promises to be present, well, there's something wrong there. There's something off. But the Spirit of God promises in a special way to be here now in our worship service among the gathered people of God. If you were a college student and I told you that there was this incredible professor on campus and that you would be wise to be filled with the wisdom and knowledge and influence of this professor, what would you do? I mean, he's got to do the filling. He's, he's got to talk to you and be willing to give his wisdom, his knowledge, his influence. But I guarantee you'd get in that professor's class and you'd set your alarm clock to make sure you're not late. You'd show up on time. You'd maybe bring your laptop for taking notes. You'd pay attention to office hours and maybe even go to those office hours and pursue conversation with the professor outside of class. All of that is accommodating being filled with that professor's wisdom, knowledge, and influence. Well, it's not very different in the way we approach the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I love the way John Piper puts this in one of his books. There are certain paths that we know the Holy Spirit goes down. Worship, the scriptures, prayer, sacraments, fellowship among God's people, the means of grace. And if we continually go down those paths, we'll find him. That's where he goes. That's where he lingers. Perhaps before we leave this point, it might be important to make the observation that there is a distinction in Paul's mind, I think, between the presence of the Holy Spirit and this subjective filling of the Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit till the day of redemption. If you're a child of God, you are indwelt presently now by the Holy Spirit. That can't change. That can't vary by degrees. But yet there is this filling of the Holy Spirit. This coming under His influence and in more manifold experiential ways through putting off sin and putting on Christ. That's what Paul's talking about in our text. So listen, the Spirit will never leave you or forsake you. But you will feel His influence more strongly if you experience the filling of the Holy Spirit. Well, in general, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The issue is influence. Are we totally subject to the influence of God's Spirit? And Paul calls each one of us to pursue this influence. All right, now secondly... Second question we want to ask of this text. What are the results of being filled with the Spirit? We know what being filled is. It's coming totally under the influence of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? What are the results of being filled with the Holy Spirit? What do Spirit-filled people do? Do they speak in tongues? Uh, Do they have visions and dreams? What do they do? Like I said, be filled is the main verb. And then we have a number of Verbs that follow in verses 19 through 21, they're called participles. They support the main verb, okay? So for the three or four grammarians in the room, that's some high-hanging fruit for you, okay? (laughs) But it goes like this. If I said, my neighbor last night was drunk, uh, not having his wits about him, uh, shouting loudly, behaving like a fool, 
What am I doing? Those are participles. Not having his wits about him, behaving like a fool, shouting loudly. Those are the results of being filled with much alcohol to the point of drunkenness. Well, that's sort of how the language works in our text. Be filled with the Spirit, and then we have these participles of result. There's certain things we're going to do as a result of being filled with the Spirit. That's how the language works. So look at verse 19. What's the result of being filled with the Spirit? What do Spirit-filled people do? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What do Spirit-filled people do? Three things in particular we see in this text. First of all, they sing to one another and to the Lord. Spirit-filled people sing to one another and to the Lord. That's what verse 19 says. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I'm appreciative in the ESV it says addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's not the idea of like speaking, like we live in some sort of sanctified musical that I've got to sing to you every line of encouragement. Thank God it's not that way. Uh, no, but it's, it, it's the idea of singing, addressing one another with songs in the context of the worship service. See, people who are filled with God's Spirit, who are under the influence of God's Spirit, will sing to Him. See, a Christian who is eager to sing, for the right reasons. I'm not talking about people who want to perform in church, or they're really, really geared musically, and so they sing as a way to, you know, provide a platform for their gifts. No, I'm talking about someone who wants to sing to the Lord to worship Him, regardless of whether they're gifted at it or not. People who behave in that way, who sing in that way, when you see a person who sincerely wants to sing out to God in praise and worship, you should conclude that that is a result of the influence of God's Spirit. People who have in their hearts this impulse to sing in praise to God, we should conclude that that's the influence of God's Spirit. That's what the Spirit produces in God's people. Singing is not reserved in the church for those who have musical gifts. Praising God in song is the province of all of God's people, from the most gifted vocalist to the untrained and the tone deaf. Praise God that it's so, because most of us are not trained vocalists. One thing we like to say here, one of the goals we have, we're not perfect at modeling it, but we want to accommodate a choir, that's you all, of untrained voices to sing out in praise to God. That, at the end of the day, is the issue. That God's people are motivated and moved to sing out to Him because that's the product of being filled with the Spirit of God. That's what He wants. If the Holy Spirit is going to get a hold of you, He wants your tongue. He wants your voice. And I'll tell you, it's, it's tragic to me. And in preparation to plant this church, visited a number of churches to rally prayer support and financial support, was probably in two or three dozen churches over the course of a couple of years. And you go to so many churches in, in, in evangelicalism today, and you'll see maybe half the congregation singing. See, very few men singing, because the key has been set to exclude them, because the songs are so high. But also, you'll see very few children singing, and almost no teenagers singing. Let me encourage you, if you're a young person converted through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the cross of Jesus Christ, listen... The risen Christ, firstborn from the dead, who suffered on the cross in your stead, shed his blood and his body broken for your sins, I think he's entitled to your voice. He's entitled to your tongue, lisping praise to him. In fact, at the end of all things, what is the scene we see? Redeemed men and women, 
bought by the blood of the Lamb, singing praise to God. That is the result of the influence of the Holy Spirit on those who have been changed. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, all of us should enter heartily into exuberant praise to God. Before we leave this point, just notice uh, the audience of this Spirit-filled singing. There's a horizontal dimension and there's a vertical dimension. The horizontal dimension, it says, verse 19, addressing not God, but one another. In psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then we have the vertical dimension, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. If it's translated in your heart, that's probably incorrect. It's with your heart. Not like quietly in my heart I'm singing to the Lord. It's no, with your full heart, your full being, you're singing to God. But isn't that interesting? Do, do you think when you come into church on Sunday morning, I'm singing to my brothers and sisters in the church. And I'm singing to God. Always singing to God, but we sing to one another on Sunday mornings. I'll tell you, such an encouragement to me when I've had a long week and had struggles and sin and just feeling tired and then to be sitting on the front row and to hear the praise of God's people. There's a horizontal dimension there. My heart is encouraged. I'm lifted up. To me, it's a wonderful thing. You know, you know a sister in the church maybe who's waiting, awaiting maybe a cancer diagnosis, positively or negatively. And yet here she is singing praise to God. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Does that encourage you? Does that help you? Does that give you strength for the fight? It's horizontal dimensions, singing to one another. Despite this trial I'm going through, I'm testifying to everyone around me that the Lord is faithful. If a young person struggling with assurance, feeling like, you know, I, I just can't be a child of God, and maybe you're there next to him and you're singing, he will hold me fast. And you put your arm around that brother and you say, he will hold you fast. For my Savior loves you so. He will hold you fast. There's a, an encouraging element to that. There's a horizontal dimension to our singing. So I encourage you, gain, gain encouragement and help from your brothers and sisters as we sing together on Sunday mornings. I remember I was not there the Sunday this happened, but the previous church I was in, uh, uh, family lost uh, a son in a car accident. And it was just uh, a couple days later that the church gathered for worship and, uh, and there was this young man's mom on the front row singing praise to God. Think of what that did for that church. To see that in mountains and in valleys, in hardship and in prosperity, I'm going to sing to the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Powerful testimony and encourage countless people who just told me what a blessing it was. There was that horizontal singing, but certainly a vertical dimension, which we think more about this. We're singing to the Lord with united voice, and that's included in our text as well. Singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. What's the first mark, Paul lists, of the Spirit-filled Christian? It is the one who sings to others and to the Lord. Now, what else do Spirit-filled people do? Secondly, our text says they continually give thanks to God. They continually Give thanks to God. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you see a person who is good at giving thanks to God, who regularly has thanksgiving on her voice, who always has thanksgiving on her lips, you should think to yourself, that person must be well acquainted with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit fills a person, gets hold of a person, the inevitable result is continual thanksgiving to God. And we might say the opposite is true. 
Wherever you see a person marked by ingratitude, someone who grumbles and complains before God and before others, you may safely conclude that person must not be familiar with the influence of the Holy Spirit. Continuous thanksgiving is the result of the filling of the Spirit. We find 10,000 reasons to give thanks to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to engender and produce in us. Continuous thankfulness to God. And now thirdly and finally, the third result of being filled with the Spirit. They submit to one another. People filled with the Spirit of God, they submit to one another. That's what verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This command is going to become more particularized, more narrow in the weeks ahead as we think about submitting uh, wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters, and all that. We'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. But I want to consider it now as this more general command that we are submitting to one another, that there's this dynamic of mutual submission that takes place in the church. The concept of submitting to others in our day is viewed negatively, that of submitting to someone else. But we have to be very careful not to import our cultural baggage into that term submit because in the scriptures it's a blessed thing Mm -hmm. to submit my preferences and my desires to someone else. So we've got to be careful in our use of this phrase. The word submit has a broad semantic range but generally refers to assuming one's place under a certain order of hierarchy or roles. It can refer in military terms to the order or chain of command. I think Paul's emphasis is on The order and harmony that is produced through proper submission in divinely appointed relationships. It doesn't hurt anybody. Rather, it produces harmony and joy and peace. And though there are more narrow applications of this idea of submission, verse 21 is concerned with mutual submission in the body of Christ. We're told that we are to submit to one another. One of the ways in which we preserve unity and harmony within the church body is through submitting to one another out of reverence. For Christ. So Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Regardless of rank or status, I want to honor you. I want to submit my preferences to yours. I'm going to view your needs as more important than my own. Philippians 2 and verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. And we're told to look to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who came as a servant and even submitted himself uh, to his brothers and sisters and also to his persecutors and those who sent him to the cross. John Calvin shares some powerful words with us in his commentary on Ephesians 5.21. He says this, God has so bound us to each other that no man ought to avoid subjection. Isn't that interesting? God has so bound us to each other that no man ought to avoid subjection. And where love reigns, there is mutual servitude. Kind of blows up some of our categories, right? But but the idea of me submitting my will and my desires to a brother, sister in Christ, my preferences to a brother, sister in Christ, that's commended by God. And that's the result of being filled with the Spirit. We don't have to get our own way. We don't have to always have our preferences satisfied. We don't have to clamor for recognition in the church. I don't have to have my gifts uh, uh, paraded and, and put on a pedestal. There's this willingness to mutually submit to one another. 
Spirit-filled people are not self-important. They don't insist on asserting their own interests. They don't clamor to have their gifts recognized. When a man or woman is influenced by God's Spirit, he or she is willing to defer to others and to esteem others' needs higher than their own. A Spirit-filled congregation is a congregation marked by mutual deference, service to one another, and the sincere effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you want to be part of a community of people filled with God's Spirit? Where love reigns, as John Calvin says, and when we're willing to submit our interests to those of our brothers and sisters. I know I want to be part of that community. If we're filled with God's Spirit, that will inevitably take place. I need to conclude for the sake of time and for the sake of coming in a few moments to the Lord's Supper. I just want to read to you Romans 14, verses 17 through 19 about the results of the influence of the Spirit. For the kingdom of God, Paul says, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit wanting to produce? Righteousness, peace, and joy. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. We pursue the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the filling of the Holy Spirit. This will be a community marked by righteousness, peace, and joy. And as he says, peace and mutual upbuilding. This is what life in the Holy Spirit holds out to us. We've seen over the course of these last few months that only those who are united to Christ, those who forsake sin and put their faith and trust in Him, can have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And all the benefits that he brings of joy, of life, peace, and righteousness. So to my unbelieving friend, who has not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been united to him, I want to encourage you that if you come to Jesus, he will give you his promised Holy Spirit. And you will have power at work within you that you never thought possible. And you will experience within a community of God's people health and life and joy and peace and righteousness through the influence of the Holy Spirit. And God will make you a contributor to that community by His Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, please seal these truths on our hearts. Help us to understand, to be wise with respect to your will. Indeed, it is your will, we know from your word, that we all be filled with the Holy Spirit. That individually and as a body of your people, we would be so under his influence. That we are singing together in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing to one another and to the Lord. uh, That we are continually giving thanks to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we are so possessed with love and marked by love that we're willing to submit our preferences to one another and defer to one another and count others' needs and desires more important than our own. Help us to be this community by your Spirit. And we pray that for all those who are not united to Christ, that they would believe on Him today in repentance and faith. And that they would have the promised Holy Spirit residing within them and producing these very same fruits that we've seen. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.